ladies, you'd be in trouble because you can't grow a stylish beard. And if you can, just keep that to yourself. Okay. As you see in your notes, this message is called Ruled by Grace. We've been going through the series called Set in Stone. We've been talking about grace. And two weeks ago, Miss Katrina, where's she at? There she is. She gave us a message called Redeemed by Grace, and it was talking about the redemption that we get through God even though we fall short. And it was incredible. And last week, we heard an incredible word by Mr. James Wilson about truth, even though it had nothing to do with the series. Um, if you will, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17. And I'm just going to say a quick prayer. Lord, I thank you for this day that you have given me and allowing me to be used by you. I pray that the words that you have given me would bless someone here and that your anointing would be, that your anointing would be poured out unto us. In your name, amen. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat freely the, tr the fruit of the tree in the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, Adam and Eve were the only two people in the garden. They were all a creation, and they were given one rule. And because, the reason they were only given one rule was because there was no sin. There was no danger in the world. So one rule sufficed them to obey but they couldn't even obey that one rule. Eve was deceived into believing that she could eat of this fruit and not have anything happen to her. And in doing this, she enticed Adam to do it. But the thing I want you to look at, even though they were just given this one rule, all they had to do was not break it. They were they could do anything they wanted to. But in doing this, we see that maximum freedom is always found under the authority of God. As long as they follow this one rule, they could do whatever they wanted. But they came to a place where they said, is this one rule really important for me? Or is there something that God is keeping from me by this one rule? And it's kind of like how we are whenever we're all kids. I mean, we've all done this. I guarantee everyone who of you in here have done this. So whenever you're in the kitchen with your mom and your little kid, and she's making lunch or dinner or whatever you know, and she's cooking with the stove, and she sees you eyeballing that stove, and she says, don't you put your hand up there, it's going to burn you. And you say, oh, okay. And you're just thinking, is it really going to hurt me that bad? I mean, I, mean, I guess I'm just going to have to find out for myself, you know. So you reach your little hand up there, and you find out real quick how right she was. And that's like most of you, but my, my childhood was a little bit different, you see. I'm from Alabama, as most of you know. And I lived out in the country, and I had an older brother, and in the country, all we had to do was throw rocks and throw dirt and stuff like that. So um, my mom was in the kitchen making supper one night, and me and my brother were out in the yard. We have a pretty good-sized yard, um, and I found this little critter rolling around in the grass out there. It was about a four-foot-long snake. And my mama saw me eyeballing this snake, and she said, uh-uh. She ran up there to that front door and said, Jordan, don't you pick up that snake. I said, yes, mama, you know. And uh, so she went back inside, and I just, you know, I'm just crouched down looking at this thing, you know, just like poking it with a stick like Steve Irwin or something, you know. And um, I just reached down there and grabbed that critter, and he struck me right there. 
And I dropped and I said, oh, snap. You know, I started screaming. I, I swear I could have woken up Lazarus from my scream because my mama came running out there. She was like, are you okay? Are you okay? She, she brought a knife with her, too. So she was, like, sitting there chopping up the snake. <laughs> and y'all don't know my mama like that. Stephen and Brandon, they know me all my life, but they don't know my mama like that. So um, <laughs> it was kind of new for me, too, you know. I'm like, Mom, what are you doing? You going to cook it now? I mean, but anyway... She saw that I was okay, and then, as Jesus, as God does, he disciplined me. She disciplined me, you know, because after you pick up a snake and bite, you need to be disciplined because you don't need to do that no more, okay? And like I said, God does the same thing for us. We're all tempted to ask that same question. Is God keeping something from me? Is it really going to be that bad? And it's, it's like this, okay? It's like... We're right here in the middle of life. And to my left over here, we have temptation and sin. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know the kind of temptation I'm talking about, okay? Gluttony. And, of course, you know, murder and lies and coveting and all that stuff. But, you know, cove- you know, we eat really good at the cafe. Even though it's not really good food, we eat a lot of it. Anyway, we see that it looks good. And so we're like, can it really be that bad? And so we take a step. Nothing happens. It starts to look even better. We take a step or two more, still nothing happens. And it's right there for us to take. And we keep on walking until we finally get to the edge. And we say, you know, how much is it going to hurt me just to take a small little step in? And we step in. And we're covered in our shame and our bitterness. And everything that God doesn't want us to have to go through. And it's something that God has to pull us up out in as we cry out to him. He pulls us up out of that mess, out of our shame, out of our bitterness, and he brings us back up. But see, here's the cool thing. It works both ways. Like over here to my right is God's presence. And we get to a place in our walk with him where we take a step and we see how good his presence is. And we take a step or two more. And we notice that we're not being harmed, we're not being tempted, but we're being blessed as we walk closer to him. And we keep on walking and we keep on walking and we get right up to his presence. And we're at that point where we're like, I don't want to look weird to my friends or anything, so I'm just going to take a small step in. And as we step in, we're at his feet. We're in the glory of his presence. And we're clothed in majesty. Now, in our sin, in our disobedience of his law, he has to discipline us. But as we walk into his presence, as we're baptized by his glory, he gives us something else, another consequence. He gives us blessing. Okay. Now, we do the same thing with sin, as I said. God gave us ten commandments to abide by. Just as he gave Adam and Eve one because that was all that was needed. He has to give us 10 because there's more danger. There's more sin in the world. Where there's sin, there's danger. So he had to give us 10 rules. And it's really not difficult for us to do it unless we're not in his presence, unless we're not baptized by his glory, unless we're not covered in his grace. When we trust and obey, it becomes clear that the law of God is actually an expression of his grace. You see, the two, law and grace, 
are not opposing forces. One is just an expression of the other. God gives us these laws, these Ten Commandments, to keep us in his grace, to keep us out of harm's way, to keep us in his own freedom. Because, like I said before, true freedom is only found in his place. And when we see it in this light, we can understand the words of the psalmist in Psalms 1-2, when it says, he was actually delighted in God's law and meditated on it both day and night. When we see God's law the way he intended it, there's no really tension between the two, law and grace, because they work together. They keep us safe, and they keep us in his freedom, and they keep us in his grace. Now, starting from commandments 5 through 10, it's funny because God puts one before all the rest of them. Number five, honor your father and mother. And the reason he does that is because if we can do that, we're more likely to be able to follow the rest of them. If you can honor your father and mother, you're more likely to get along with the people that are around you. If you can honor your father and mother, you won't have to worry about the rest of them because you've been raised up in the same way that God has asked us to be raised up in that is commanded by our parents. And so, ladies, if you want to see how a guy is going to treat you, look at the way he treats his mother. Guys, if you want to see how a lady is going to treat you and react to you, look at the way she treats her dad. Now, unless they've had some kind of messed up childhood or something, you know, that's more than likely going to be true. But now let's look at uh, number six. You shall not murder. The Hebrews would honor each other's bodies, and they would learn that by being disciplined by their parents and by receiving grace from their parents. I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, we're Christians. We shouldn't be going around killing people. I mean, that's just, that's not Christ-like. He didn't go and do that while he was here, so. Um, the next one, you should not commit adultery. Okay. Come on, guys. Don't go knocking boots with your neighbor's wife. I mean, that's just ungodly. Completely. You shall not steal. He commanded them to honor each other by respecting their ownership of property and possessions. Okay. If I see, okay, I see Brandon's iPad right here. I'm not just going to walk up to him because, and take it because he's going to try and kill me, you know. I mean, that's just how it is. We're not, well, God doesn't want us to be in harm's way. He wants to be safe. He wants us to be, remain in freedom. So if I try to take that, you know, you're going to get hurt. You should not give false testimony against your neighbor. God wanted them to honor the reputation of others. It takes years. It takes a lifetime to build up a reputation and build up your character but it takes a matter of seconds to tear it all down. Someone can work their whole life to build up a reputation of trust and honesty, and you spread one little rumor, and all of that's going to the wayside. All of that's in destruction. You should not covet your neighbor's house, wife, servant, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. To covet means to desire strongly. So, like I said, if I want Brandon's iPad, that itself is a sin. If I desire my neighbor's wife, that itself is a sin. I don't even have to act on it because I've already sinned in God's eyes and I need to ask forgiveness right then instead of waiting until I go ahead and do that then to ask for forgiveness. I don't care what you say. It is never better to ask for forgiveness than ask for permission. If you know it's not right, then don't do it. If you have to ask, you shouldn't do it. And that's God's command. In these six commandments, God said simply, to preserve your freedom both personally and as a nation, honor one another. As you consider the context in which these laws were given, 
they weren't trying to keep the Israelites from something good. He was trying to keep them out of harm's way and to bless them. And there's nothing that we can do to completely get out of God's presence if he has already blessed us unless we break these rules. Another one of the great commandments, or if you'd like to call it, the great commission. Jesus is the son of God, part of the Holy Trinity. He has the authority that God the Father has to give laws and to command his people. So if you will, turn your Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. And as Jesus gave these laws to his disciples, he was giving them what they were supposed to do after he's gone, after he's no longer with them. And so even though he's not walking this earth with us, he's still, the Holy Spirit is still with us in our spirit. And we know because that's part of the Trinity, because he commanded us to do it and because we are the descendants of him. Okay, starting in verse 16. Then the 11 disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. But some of them doubted. Verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it says right here in verse 18, Jesus told us disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Just like I said, he's God's son. He has the power. He can do whatever he wants to. He can make new laws if he requires it. He commands us by his spirit. And whenever he commands us, whenever he calls us, whenever he leads us, we are to move and to act right then. And so we keep on going through this. We know who we're supposed to talk to. But it's difficult for us because we're scared and we're uncomfortable. Especially people we know. We're scared to to share the gospel with people we know. We're scared to share it with people we love. And that rings true for me. And I'm reminded of a time in my life where a friend of mine who I met in seventh grade was Craig Martin. And... You know, he was the class clown. He was the guy. He was in my homeroom. I had homeroom with him from 7th to 12th grade, you know. He was always a class clown. The teachers hated him, but they couldn't help but love him because he was just, you know, that guy. And so I had my homeroom and my math class with him and went on up to 8th grade. And so, okay, this how it's weird at my, in my hometown. Like, we have six elementary schools that are K through 6th grade, and then we all get together for 7th grade. And then it splits back up into two junior highs for 8th through ninth grade. And then we come back together for 10th through 12th grade at high school. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, you make friends and you lose them and you make them again. And then you graduate and then they're gone. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But anyway, I get to 8th and 9th grade with him. You know, we're in junior high and, you know, we're junior highs. We're typical junior highs. We're stupid. You know, we're clowning around in class, making the teacher mad at us. You know, I've never got sent to the principal for anything. Even though I was with him all the time, he was always one that got called out. I don't know what it was, but I guess God's hand was over me in that or something. But, like, I played football with him. He was just a great friend. Even at football practice, he was one of the uh, guys that was just clowning around. He was making fun of the coaches and making them mad, but making them laugh, too. And 
making fun of the players, but he was also one of our best players on the team. And then we got to high school, 10th through 12th grade. And in 10th grade, he, you know, there's a high school of around 2,000 kids, so it's going to be kind of hard to keep up with your friends and get in your classes with them. And so he started hanging around with different people because, you know, he wasn't in the same class as me. And he started hanging out with these, this crowd over here, and I was just still over here with my friends. You know, I didn't really want to go out and party and all this stuff because I was raised as a Christian, and I didn't want to do that. And so he began to hang out with those guys, and he became the life of the party. I saw him a few times that year started. I mean, I ate lunch with him maybe twice throughout the whole year. And then on to 11th grade, I saw even less of it. He started going to these parties, and, you know, it was, he was the life of the party. It wasn't a party unless he was there. He was, you know, the guy that everyone hung around, everyone wanted to be around at break and at lunch, you know, just because he was funny and people just liked him. And even though I saw less and less of him, he was still my boy. He was still my friend. And so... Moving on to 12th grade, I barely ever saw him. I would see him every now and then, just driving around town. I'd wave at him. He'd never see me. And he started skipping class because he was either hungover, he was out in the street selling drugs, you know, doing something stupid. And then came graduation day. And as we're sitting there in that room, I remember in my chair, we're all set down, how we're supposed to be seated in the stadium, you know. And our principal's about to give us our pre-walkout speech or whatever. And I see Craig slip in in his, night, in his uh, cap and gown and slips in, sits five seats down from me. And just seeing him there made me a little bit, gave me a little bit of pride because, you know, even though he's been through all this stuff, even though he's had all these times where he made wrong decisions, he's still able to make grace, be able to graduate. So we walk out, we sit down, we hear all the speeches, we get up in line. And, you know, I, oh, man, I just burped. That was bad. And um, we get up there, and I, you know, shake my hands with the principal, get my fake diploma case or whatever, and get my picture taken. As I'm walking down, you know, we got like 460 seniors, so we got to, you know, get people through. So as I'm walking down, I barely get down the stairs, and I hear him say, Craig Martin, Jr. And I turned around, and there he was. He let out a yelp of joy, you know. You know, I was proud because that's my boy. And so... Like, you know, we have to go turn in our uh, cap and gown to get our diploma and everything. And I say goodbye to him. I gave him a hug. And that was the last I saw him for a while. And a little over a month later, I was sitting in bed. You know, you know how you are as you're, after you're graduating. You just don't want to do anything. So I'm sitting in bed one morning. It was around 7 o'clock. And I was just sitting there just laying in bed just thinking about stuff. And my dad's a fireman, and he has to... He's been the captain for 26 years, and he has to go to, like, fire calls, medical calls, wrecks, you know, the whole deal. And so he has to work a 24-hour shift, and he doesn't really sleep that well at night. And I heard him come in around 7.30, and my mom was talking to him and asking him how his night was, and he said, you know, I just didn't really get that much sleep. We had a lot of stuff happening. And I hear him walk back to my room, and he knocks on the door, you know, I said, come in. And he opens up the door. And he's standing there in the doorway, and he said, hey, son, how you doing? I'm like, all right, you know, you wake me up, but, you know. And he said, good, good, you know. And he looked at me and said, do you know anyone that drives a white, newer model 
diesel on max pump. And I sat there for a minute and I thought about it and I was like, the only people I know that drive that is like an older one, you know, whatever. And he was like, okay. And he walked out. And this bugged me because I was just like, why in the world is he asking me this, you know, because he doesn't really talk about work outside of work. And I'm sitting there thinking, and I remember Craig had just gotten a new, like, Nissan Maxima for his graduation present or whatever. And I go into the living room where he's at the computer and I ask him, hey, Dad, what was that about? And he said, son, sit down. I sat down on my couch, you know, not knowing what to expect. He looked at me in the eyes and he said, I'll never forget it. He said, I don't know how to tell you this. There's no easy way to say it. But to love. Craig was in the wreck last night around 1 o'clock. And he was going around a curve too fast and he wasn't wearing a seatbelt. and months and months and weeks after this I was weeping and I was mourning over my friend because I knew him and out of these six years that I knew him he was one of my best friends and I looked after him every day you know I looked for him every day at lunch and everything but the worst part about it what broke my spirit was in these six years 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 12th 11th, 12th grades out of those six years that I knew him time, not once, did I ever speak the name Jesus. Not one time did I ever tell him about God's grace that's ready for him. Not one time did I ever tell him about his love. And I remember at the funeral there in his casket, he was in his prom tux, it was a white tux with a yellow vest and yellow bow tie. saw it was a peace on his face but I knew it wasn't what was inside of him at the time he died and so every day since then I've been praying God please don't let this happen again don't let me lose another friend like this who I haven't spoken to about you and God began to lay someone on my heart my friend Jonathan I met Jonathan in 7th grade along with Craig I grew up with him all throughout we went to the same schools we played football together and everything and God began to work on him. And that was whenever I came here. This happened, not this last summer, but the one before that in 2010. And I came here, and I still thought about Craig every day. And, you know, I prayed. I was asking God, please let me have another chance to do something. And it was at Mardi Gras, New Orleans, where we were at the commissioning service. I don't know how many of you guys went there, but um, it was just an awesome time of prayer. And I got down on my knees at the front, and I was just crying out to God, please don't let this happen again. And I was just weeping, and God spoke to me. He said, I'm going to let you hear something. It's going to break you. It's going to make you hurt. But it needs to get out. And I don't care if you believe in the supernatural or whatever, but God let me hear Craig beyond the grave. It wasn't like a, like, a, like a ghost or whatever, but I could hear him screaming. And no one screams of joy. Of pain and torment, 
broke me and I just began to weep and weep and weep and it must have lasted 10, 15 minutes. And God finally calmed me down and he said, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And as I left there, I felt a peace about me. I felt a peace that even though in those six years I never spoke anything to him, it was his choices that made him where he was. But I still felt accountable. So I kept on praying for God to just let me find someone. Let me help help me get Jonathan to know you. And so during the summer, I went back to my youth group, you know, and one of the kids there was Dylan, Jonathan's cousin. And one night Dylan, Dylan brought Jonathan to the youth group there. And he had never been to a youth group before in his life. He went to church whenever he was a little kid, but he'd never been part of a youth group. He never had seen anything like that. And so as we were worshiping, like, I knew he couldn't tell, like, what was going on, like, what to do or anything, how to raise his hands or anything like that. But there at the end, after everything was over with, after the sermon was over with, we were singing one last worship song. And we came up together to pray. And Dylan brought Jonathan up, and he said, I want you to pray for him. And my youth pastor said, okay. And um, she motioned for me to come up because she wanted me to do it because she knew I had a friendship with Jonathan. So I was able to lead our youth group in prayer. And as I laid my hands on him, I could feel him weep. I could feel just everything that had gone on in his life. His parents, you know, they uh, drank and everything. They weren't drunks or beat him or anything like that. You know, he was a good kid. He never went out or partied or anything like that. But he could, I could just feel that there's a heaviness on him. And as I began to pray, I could just feel that lift off of him. That was the first and the only time I've ever seen him cry. He never lets you see him cry. But as we sat there and talked after the prayer and everything, like he accepted Jesus into his heart and I knew that was my moment. I knew this was the chance I needed. And so we go out to eat and everything. We're still talking about it. Like he's trying to find out like, you know, like what version of the Bible is the best, you know, like what's the best translation I need to get. And so I'm like, you know, just don't worry about all that. We'll get you all set up and everything. And we ate and we said our goodbyes. And on my way home, I remember driving. And as I turned onto the road, it hit me. And I had to pull over. And I got up my phone and looked at the date. And it was exactly a year to the day that Craig had passed away. God gave me the opportunity of a lifetime, even though I broke his rules, even though I broke his commitment of not telling Craig about him, about his love, he extended me grace. His hand reached down past my broken laws, past my sin, past my ignorance, and he reached down and he grabbed me and said, here's a second chance. If you guys will go ahead and bow your heads and close your eyes. don't want this to be a time of hype or emotion or anything like that, but if you will, if you want to, you can spread out across the room, uh, come down to the altar, stay in your seat or whatever, but I want you to think about God's goodness and His grace and the laws that He gives us every day. And even though we break those laws, even though we break those commandments, I want you to think about His grace that He extends down. So as the worship team plays, just mull around, just do whatever, just think about God and praise Him for His grace.